Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I am the Force, and the Force is with me, and the Force comes in the Force form of Matt and Jason. Hi, guys. How are we? What's up? Good, good. So we are here to discuss Rogue One, uh, Star Wars story, um, otherwise known as the off films, the off numbers, as it were, between the um, the huge uh, Star Wars uh, films that obviously occupy the uh, the last three of the sort of original nine. And uh, Rogue One is the first of those made by uh, the team at ILM Story from, of course, something that came from uh, uh, John himself, John Noel, and uh, directed by Gareth Edwards. It's just a really huge film. We've had more requests for us to do a VFX show about this than any uh, in recent memory. So I'm really keen to kick off the show. As I said, I'm joined uh, by the guys. Um, And uh, Jason Diamond, how are you? You're just recovering from a kid's party, I believe. Yes, my son is now 10. He's uh, double digits. Uh-oh. So we had some cake and, you know, hijinks and two big. Harry Potter wands. Well, a Harry <laughs> Potter a wand big. and a Newt's Commander wand. So uh Okay. My son my son wore a Hogwarts shirt to the to Rogue One, so we were sort of mixing genres and and tempting fate. Nice. Right. Let the force be with you, Harry. Um and Matt Wallen, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm good. Yeah, just uh, having a quiet evening here at home. Right. Well, I'm having a. I I saw online. (laughs) Oh yeah, I had a a fine cocktail in preparation for this show. I'm having a warm cup of tea, green tea. That's because I'm um, (laughs) still jet lagged. I only just got in from um, the UK, and I'm only here for another uh, week or so for Christmas, and then I'm off to Hawaii again. Jetting around a lot at the moment, doing oh, uh, basically conference papers and stuff. Yeah, well, yes, terrible I, going to. Hawaii. I said to my wife, "Do you want to go to Ireland or to Hawaii?" Because I was giving papers at both, and she picked Hawaii. Surprisingly, <laughs> yeah, um, two islands, one grey, one not. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so Matt, lead us off. What do we think, Rogue One? Uh, I mean, I think it is a good movie. I, I enjoyed it. I had a fun time in the theater. There's some really, really, uh, great things about this movie. And there's a few things that like, eh, you know, I, I probably wasn't as keen on as maybe some other people were. I a lot of my, um, my compadres, uh, around the inner tubes, have been, uh, you know, rejoicing. Uh, but but a few people here and there, I think, have had a few rejoinders, you know, like shared some of my um, uh, minor quibbles uh, with the film. But by and large, I thought it was it was really, really fun. It reminded me a lot of um, uh, uh, Force 10 from Navarone or The Dirty Dozen or something like that. It had that kind of... Mm. Um, Good reference. You know, narrative narrative structure to it, and and I thought that you know those kinds of movies are always sort of neat. Like and it and it was, um, you know, a war movie for the Star Wars uh, universe. Yes, a Star Wars movie without much uh, Jedi action and hardly any lightsabers. Hey, um, what do you think, Jason? Uh, I loved it. I you know I sort of set aside any you know any minor or any issues i had with it i sort of set aside as uh personal things and and on a whole i think as a movie that fits in the star wars universe i i agree with matt in the i would say even like big red one like you know it's like it's a mission excuse me you know like star wars they had a mission but it was like this really giant thing 
and nobody knew what was going on and blah, blah, blah. And they're fi- figuring it all out. But in, in this one, it was very focused. It seemed to me they had, they figure out what this giant thing is. Oh, it's a, it's a giant planet, you know, moon destroying thing. Uh, eventually they figure out it's called a death star and then they have to figure out how to destroy it. And, well, I did think know. there was a, uh, I did think there was a ninety-seven point six percent chance that you'd like it. So, yeah. so I'm glad <laughs> to hear it. Okay, so what do we think? Just let's hit the story first before we get into. Well, wait, visual what effects. did you think, though, Mike? Oh yeah. Oh well, you knew I was going to like it, didn't you? I mean, really, that's not. No, uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I suppose I, I, I know you maybe would be predisposed to, uh, you know, be supportive of the filmmaker himself, but I just was wondering what you thought of it overall as a story and as a sure. Film. Gareth's a great guy, and uh, and absolutely. But I mean, so I mean, there's so many good people involved in uh, in making this film. So many friends with ours we know, obviously. But um, yeah, no, I thought it was really good. I mean, I've been looking forward to this film enormously, though. As I said, I was traveling a lot, so I really didn't get that kind of build up to it. And I managed to see it with almost no spoilers, um, only a couple. Mm. It's actually really hard for me to see films without spoilers. The only other film that I'd seen in recent, and I mean like in the last three years without spoilers, was the last Star Wars film. In that case, I was on a cruise <laughs> and I got off a boat where I was at a media blackout and had to go and see it almost straight away. Um, I think this film is uh, is really, really good. I think it's one that that is sort of um, leaning heavily into the fans insofar as it's quite sort of rich and uh, it's not trying to get an audience that doesn't understand Star Wars to go to it. It's um, Whereas the, yeah. the last Star Wars film was a bit of a greatest hits, um, this one was more like we're going to give you subtle stuff that the fans will really appreciate and, um, and sort of rise to rather than we're going to give you all the stuff that you remember from when you were a kid. So, you know, I think it was Yeah, this one, that's a good, ref- that's a good sort of reference. I, I like, yeah, if, if episode seven was the greatest hits, this was like a new single by a band you really liked, except the guitar player quoted all his solo licks that you loved from their first record. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, or, and, or maybe like a really, a really a hot B side. Yeah, and there's yeah. there are a few a films cover, that have done this that have done B-side a prequel cover. that r- leads right up to the moment of a of a previous film. And on the whole, yeah. I kind of like that. I mean, I I know it's a bit gimmicky to sort of have you know things be jigsaw puzzles that drop in place and you go, oh, that's going to be, or oh, that's going to be, you know, so-and-so. But, I, you know, I kind of like that as an experience. I mean, no, it had I think to be. that this... I mean, we talked about this, my brother and I talked about this incessantly, like if Rogue One, before we saw it, if Rogue One does not literally end minutes or, you know, even frames before Star Wars starts, they're missing a huge opportunity. Yeah. It's really right. also... You know where it's going, so just do it. Sure. So I'm going to say right now, obviously, mega spoilers, because from here on out, I mean, we just assume that you've seen the film. Okay, so I think it was really brave to kill off all the cast. That is not something that I expected to see happen. Um, I would have really given money that that wasn't going to be the case going in. So that was interesting, I think. But it's great because it solves a lot of problems. Like, oh, well, why didn't you see, you know, Krennic in Star Wars? Or where was so-and-so in you know, the, the rest of the trilogy, like clearly they'd show up at some point. You'd think, yeah. Yeah. Anyone that was that instrumental in doing something as important as getting, um, out the, uh, the, uh, you know, plans would definitely appear. I'd tell you the other thing that I thought was interesting. I I was only later, because like after I was got out of the film, I enjoyed the film when I was watching it, but, but later I did feel a little ripped off because I'd kind of was looking forward to some kind of 
Vader action that was a bit more substantial, especially after that shot in the trailer when, you know, um, we see the, um, I presumed it was Vader's ship coming up at the end of the landing. You know, I'm not sure I'm talking about from the trailer. So oh, she's, yeah. she's, um, so, so for those of you that haven't been uh, oh, absorbed right. in fan um, kind of postings, there's a lot of stuff in the early trailers in particular and then right through to the late trailers that didn't appear in the film. And one of those uh, sequences that um, sort of therefore became really curious is to what happened in the third act. And we know now that the third act was heavily re restructured, but um, there were scenes where they were running across the beach carrying the hard drive-y thing. I'm not going to call it, I mean, it's probably not a hard drive, but let's call it a hard drive. <laughs> she was running across the beach with that, right? Now, clearly they never got out of the, the, um, the sort of antenna tower in the version that we saw in the, in the uh, cinema. And also it looked like she was going to meet Vader um, uh, on that landing at the end. So there was some, some really different stuff going on. Now, a couple of people have published stuff saying, you know, maybe in, in a few years' time we'll see what really happened. But I'm like, what really happened is what we saw in the cinema. Um, yeah. And I totally don't buy into this, oh, there are deleted scenes and that will make it better because if it was better, they would have put it in. Um, so this is the story. But nevertheless, I was kind of looking forward to a bit more Vader action. I kind of expected this to be a Vader film and have as much Vader as we had Han in the, uh, in the last one. But what, what did you think, Matt? Yeah, I think that would have been pretty cool. I, I sort of felt like the uh, there were some great things in, with regards to the use of uh, of the Darth Vader character. There was some great stuff in there. I thought the um, the introduction of the character in his uh, you know tank of uh, healing liquid I thought was back really to, cool with his back to tank, Matt. Yes, of course, his <laughs> his back to tank and his um, his uh, his little uh, manservant in his castle. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, now, aren't you a bit but, of a sick puppy to build your own castle where you got burnt to death and someone nicked yeah. your lightsaber? <laughs> yeah, I suppose I suppose that's kind of a, a sick thing to do. I don't know. But maybe sick in like a, a cool Darth Vader way, like it was sick, you know. Um, <laughs> I think in some of the either the car, the cartoon version or in some of the fan fiction, he has a castle somewhere else, um, somebody hmm. told me. Not, yeah, he's there got is a castle a, on a different planet. But then yeah. they just decided to move it to Mustafar for continuity, I guess. But but I, know, I thought I thought the use of him was 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 very minimal. He felt like a peripheral character, and when he he was uh, on scene, like it, I don't know. There was something about um, uh, it. He didn't feel as Vader esque to me. <laughs> as he did. Oh, in, I did really enjoy the Vader movie. theme tune when the Vader theme tune came up. I was. I was I was a very happy man. Hmm. Well, let's I don't let's see why that, that quickly. Vader. Like the music, this is the first non-John Williams score, right? Mm -hmm. This is Michael yeah. Giacchino, who I th I mean was probably a was probably a suggestion from JJ since he did all of Lost and does a lot of JJ's movies. Um, so you're the musician but, amongst us. What did you think? What'd you say? Did it work? Yeah, well, you're the, you're the one that's got the most musical cred amongst us. What oh, did you think? How did yeah, no, actually, I really liked the music because it, it, it gave you all the stuff you wanted from the Star Wars score, but it's like they would, they would tease the themes and then like halfway through, you know, they would make a turn. So like you had the familiar sort of ends and then they would, then they would, it was like, it was like a variations on a theme. You know what yeah. I mean? Which which I really liked. At no point was it. There's actually there's one I can't remember where it was. 
there was there was one, one slowed down version of something that I remember hearing. It was a yeah, really slow version. I think it was. Some, I think it was when she was climbing the tower internally, getting when right. there was like the fight scene with Krennic. Uh, I think. I think it was there. It was like a little too on the nose action movie. There was one cue in the movie that I like sort of was like, Oh, that's weird. Like it doesn't have the, the, the drive. Like you either go straight to Mars bringer of war, you know, the dun, 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 whatever, or you go, or you go a different way. You know what I mean? You go a different way, but this one was like super, like kind of, it was a little mission impossible. Score. I thought okay. the whole score seemed more like seemed more like strings heavy, and there was less yeah. horns and uh, less drums. You know, like it was yeah. it was much more of like a strings kind of score that felt more. Um, uh, I mean, I did I personally didn't like it as much. I didn't think it was as as memorable, and I thought the action beats of the movie um, it felt like it could have used a little bit more of that kind of staccato kind of yeah. uh, horns and drums kind of. Um, almost like a like a western, you know, or like a yeah. or like a World War II movie, like with some of those kind of more sort of, um, for lack of a better term, like the sort of <laughs> Marine Corps band kind of you know yeah. uh, hits and moments or whatever. But and so it felt a little bit um, understated for me as a score. The I See, mean, for signature me, signature instruments usually are are English horn and bassoon. Those are like the kind of those are those woody kind of, you know, yeah. uh, tones that usually, you know, go through the score for a lot of John Williams stuff, but especially Star Wars. And that wasn't Cause def- it, that wasn't it, as prevalent. It, it had these big kind of deviations from the original. Like there was no scroll and I kind of noticed that and the music was different and I noticed that. And there's no kind of, you know, good guys with... Um, flying around with lightsabers and I noticed that. But that being said, it didn't feel like a cheap imitation and it didn't feel like a ripoff mm. or an exploitation. So I think it was pretty no, valid. It, it, it was it like, was well, we're going to take thing. a turn. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would listen take... to it. Like, you know, I don't know if I would put it on, get the soundtrack and listen to it, but but it worked for the movie. Yeah, but to a certain extent, like you are, you're taking one of the greatest soundtracks of all time and comparing it, you know, I mean, it's... it's oh, for yeah. sure. No, I mean, There's I'm not, almost I'm not. nothing that you could produce that's going to match Williams. I mean, that's just... Listen, he may not have iconic. done his, you know, John Williams might not have nailed it either necessarily, you know. Yeah. So... Because it would have been worse to just squeeze the life out of the other stuff. This felt like it was trying to make sense on its own a bit, which I thought was good. Um it's it's an interesting technique. I mean, I think it was as successful as Marvel has been in like sort of Marvel would do Ant-Man as a heist movie, right? Because they just didn't want to do every movie the same kind of thing. So you'd pick a thing yeah. and say, okay, well, let's make a different type of movie, but in this universe, but it's going to be different. And um, and we have to embrace that. And if we didn't do it different, it would, I guess, cheapen everything by being a bit of a um, counterfeit version, a, a bit of a faded version. Well, so, also yeah. episode seven was the softball. I mean, episode seven was like, hey, like the audience was the batter and they'd been, they, you know, just got some wicked fastballs thrown at their heads for three <laughs> movies, you know, uh, prior. And so, so, you know, 
Disney's like, hey guys, here's this big soft fuzzy ball. Like swing at it. But no matter what, like just look at it. Don't even swing. It's gonna go right out of the park. Like enjoy it. <laughs> we'll have it, we'll fun. Put it on the tee for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here it's gonna be. And it'll be on the jumbotron, and your friends will take pictures, and it'll be on Instagram, and it'll be super fun. <laughs> and then this was like, they're like, all right, now we're gonna, now we're gonna like give you a hard pitch. You'll hit it, but like you're gonna have to work for it a little bit, but it'll still be super fun. Like I feel like they're they're whittling down yeah. the the risk management. Well, not here, to use non like, to use non sort of sporting analogies. It felt like the last film was a bit of a like cocktail that had an umbrella in it that was, you know, <laughs> lolly water, and we had something that had some more hard liquor in it this time. Though it you know it took a bit of getting used to because it did have a bit of a kick and it wasn't you know as easy to swallow. But you kind of in the end felt like more of a man for having had it. Yeah, it was still on the rocks though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hopefully there was, there was no, be straight There was up. no sugar or salt crusting around the edge. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> okay. So let's swing into action on the VFX for a second. Um, or not for a second, for the rest of the whole show, really. Um, so we had, uh, if we want to start with the droids, we had a pivotal CG character in the droids uh, in K2. Now that's a character that is animated as opposed to obviously a lot with C-3PO and R2-D2, a combination, but primarily somebody in a suit. Um, it had to work as a visual in terms of sit in the shot, it had to work as a character in terms of sit into the the canon of, of droids. Um, and again, and I, I went here on the droids right after our previous conversation because I think this really is exactly what we're just talking about because, you know, BB-8 was the easy to drink slurpy cocktail that um, comes out of the machine. It's all soft and cute and fuzzy. And and this character wasn't. He wasn't the wisecracking, funny, comic relief, um, cutesy version of, you know, the, the droids we've seen. At least that's in my opinion. What do you think, Jason? Uh, I think he felt like Chewbacca if you understood what he could say. Mm, you know what I mean? Like he, okay. he had a little, I mean, he had sarcasm, which was, he felt, he felt like, like Tars and Case from Interstellar, you know, like like everyone's like, oh, we can make funny like sarcastic robots. They don't have to be like funny English robots, you know. And uh, but at the same time, he clearly performed the task. You know what I mean? Like he was he was uh, doing similar things that Han and Chewie do in the in the closed room bay, like when they're trying to rescue Leah. Is the same scene as them talking and trying to get the thing, you know, K two trying to get the thing moving. Except uh, Chewie doesn't take it to the head. Thing. No, obviously, but but I like that. You know that that even the droid, you know, has his like, you know, dragged out to the last breath. He's you know going to do his thing. Um, it gave him some humanity uh, and, and gave him some strength after, after being like basically a, kind, of, kind of a sarcastic asshole the whole time, which is fine because he was hilarious. And he, I thought he looked fabulous. Like I, I had no – I thought that there was a – I thought there was a fair bit of practical stuff, which clearly there wasn't. But like he sat in there like really well. I thought they yeah. used like a portion of them, you know, from the from Alan Tudyk on stilts or something, you know. Yeah, they rendered uh, him. Thought, they rendered him in the new uh, um, uh, stuff in in Render Man. So it's a new version of Render Man. Um, yeah. And I thought he sat in there really well. But Matt, talk to me about what you thought of the design of him because he, he lacked anything that you could really use for secondary motion. There were, I mean, there was a couple of antennas at the back, but there was nothing really obvious there to use. And the head couldn't do the things that BB-8 did, or his antennas. And we didn't have the kind of we did have articulated eyes in that the eyes could look left and right mm-hmm. and blink, 
But other than that, it, there was, you know, not a lot to work yeah, with. Was it K K R S one? Was that his name? <laughs> that would be good. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's but, from uh, the Bronx. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, I thought I thought that that character was really great, and I thought uh, as well the the rendering was great. And from a design perspective, um, I thought it was perfect. He was very um, uh, kind of industrial looking. He had a, a certain kind of utility and sort of strength in that he was uh, he was quite tall, right? And uh, it seemed to make sense that his personality was sort of um, quirky and a bit uh, abrasive or whatever. Not abrasive, but uh, like overly honest, I guess. Right? Was his was his flaw as part of his reprogramming and the fact that he, from a design point of view, his chest plate, the sort of main part of his body. Uh, was very similar to I think the 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 armor plating uh, on one of the uh, stormtroopers, like the the guys in the snow or something, or the guys in the in the um, maybe the guys that are in the the little um, the little walkers at the at the end of Return of the Jedi. Uh, it looked like that same kind of design aesthetic, like there was a similar kind of um, thought process going, and maybe there's some similar components in some of that armor as well as in some of the the body casing. I thought. Uh, they, and they were able to definitely get enough character out of him in that his movements were very robotic, right? He wasn't um, naturalistic. Like when he he catches um, a grenade or whatever that's thrown at the crowd or, uh, of uh, rebel fighters and he catches the grenade and, and pauses and talks for a second and then tosses the grenade back over his shoulder. And it's really only his arm uh, and hand that move and some of his head and his eyes sort of moving and blinking a little bit but um the rest of the body remains really static so they did get a an interesting robotic performance out of him as well that i thought made his overall character something that um was really effective and in, in terms of the integration of him into the scene i thought it was really seamless in almost every instance the one shot in particular that just really jumped out i think it's one of the first shots that we really see him um in an extreme close-up, and it's when he's seated in the cockpit next to the uh, Cassian character. And it's like he's really big on screen, and you really get a, a strong sense of the light coming in from the uh, the windscreen of the of the ship. And so you see it on the, the live-action actor, but then you're also seeing it on the robot. And it was really just a dead-on perfect match. It was an excellent uh, integration in terms of lighting and composite. Yeah, I liked that we didn't have a droid that looks like so many of the droids we've seen in other movies, like um, that they're managing to keep their own look in the Star Wars universe because it isn't the big-ass kind of um, threatening merc that we see in some games and, and other movies and stuff. It does. It was solid and felt like it was, uh, as you say, more utilitarian, not um, gold and shiny and a, whatever he is, a... What's the name of um Caesar is like he's got a type. He's a um oh, he's a translator, obviously, but I think there's a special name for him anyway. Oh yeah, he's, he's a protocol in, droid. Protocol, protocol thank you. Droid. Yes. So he's not got that feeling about him. He's got a different feeling, but you know, he same looks like two one B. He looks like two one B, the uh medical oh, yeah, droid the, the that's medical operating droid, on yeah. uh it looks yeah, like he's got like good. a fifties microphone for a mouth. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh it's got that shape, that kind of like sort of a head, sort of a shoulders. Like slightly humanoid, but only to to be functional. 
It's a great exercise for an animator to get personality and performance out of something that doesn't let them do much. I mean, we had a few of these um, over time, but, you know, there isn't much you can do in sort of facial animation on this guy. You can do some stuff with the head, but he's already kind of got that thing that tall people do where they kind of slouch a bit to not kind of look as tall as yeah. they would otherwise be. Um, and, and that kind of gives him an almost resigned to his fate feel. But by the same token, there are overtones of, I don't know, I actually thought there were vatory overtones in him. And um, for one brief period, I thought the, he was going to go dark. He was actually going to be a, um, uh, like a spy that hadn't actually fully reprogrammed him because he was obviously a strategic um, droid. I was glad that they didn't but, go that way because that would have been a bit cheap shot, but yeah. It was hilarious because, I mean, I guess um, to my Chewbacca comment, you know, they did pull the... Just like when they when they put Chewbacca in cuffs in, as stormtroopers in Star Wars, they flipped it, and he was the he was the 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 fake bad guy, you know, bringing the prisoners yes. somewhere. But right. he had but he had no poker face, like he just didn't know. I yes, I <laughs> I have captured these people. Like it was like the worst, you know, <laughs> delivery ever, which was hilarious. Well, and I think that's what sold the animation too, right? Was the the voice acting, the, yeah. the lines that he's given in the script, and then the voice actor really uh, gives him a huge amount of personality. And so that's where a lot of the sort of sense of character comes from too. Not only is it the way in which he's animated on screen, but really just that delivery of those lines and the mm-hmm. and the sound design, the way it works in conjunction with the animation. And to your integration been, point, like what did what did you guys think about? You know, this was this whole movie was shot on Alexa sixty five, with yeah. the same lenses as Hateful Eight. You know, like the one point two five Panatars from Panavision. Yeah. The act, the actual lenses, not the same brand, like the same lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I thought it looked stunning. Me too. For, oh, yeah. for a digital film in actual sixty five millimeter. Uh, I think it plus, looked, I mean, I, for my money, it looked indistinguishable from 65 millimeter. Like, I yeah. mean, it looked, it looked great. I thought it looked better. I thought it looked better. I thought yeah. it just looked better than Hateful Eight. Um, and I would not for a second feel like I'd lost something because it wasn't on film. Um, yeah, me too. It's a clean, really great image, yet you'll read tons of people's comments that they liked seeing Star Wars with a gritty, dirty, kind of grungy side of things. Um, so I feel like they got that through the art direction, the cinematography mm-hmm. and the design, and they didn't well, degrade the film to get there, which is almost now, but I they, think... But they included a lot of those sort of lensing aberrations in terms yeah. of how they generated a lot of the visual effects. Like there's Yeah, but they didn't one have shot stuff that was soft, like we've seen in some of that... Hateful Eight actually yeah. had stuff that was soft. Well, there's a great shot that was in one of the trailers too, where they go into, um, uh, they make their jump into hyperspace and you're sort of in focus in the foreground in the cockpit and what's happening in terms of the the hyperspace jump that we've seen so many times, it's, you know, sort of gone soft uh, outside the cockpit. And then even it looks like around the edges, you know, has some slightly different aberrations going on like you'd see in one of those lenses. And I thought all that stuff was just really, really stellar. They did a great job of integrating the effects work into um, the choice they made with regards to camera and lensing as well. Yeah, I mean, Greg Frazier, uh, an Australian, is the was the DP? I mean, he's. I mean, that dude 
you know, Snow White and the Huntsman, regardless of what you think of the movie, look, was beautiful anamorphic. I mean, the guy's mm-hmm. a huge anamorphic junkie. I mean, killing them softly uh, yeah. is one of the By best. By the way, and- if you get a chance to see Lion, which is a oh, small film. Yeah, I just yeah, got yeah. that screener, yeah. Did he shoot Oh my that God, too? it is so good. I mean, it's got nothing to do with visual effects, right? But yeah, man, yeah. But is did it he good. shoot that also? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah, I mean, he's one of my yeah. favorite DPs. I actually emailed Gareth when they announced that Greg Frazier was the was the DP, and uh, the only thing I wrote was, "Holy shit, you got Greg Frazier!" <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, dude. I mean, it's a, the, the fact that these guys are being allowed to pick like not action movie. DPs like Bradford Young, who shot Arrival, but he did do he did do Zero Dark Thirty, right? Well, yeah, but so, I'm just saying, like, on a whole, it's not like he's just a Marvel guy or just a big tentpole movie guy. Um, no, no, totally. And you know, um, Bradford Young, who shot Arrival, is shooting the Han Solo movie. Like, he shot Selma. He shot, you know, Most Violent Year. Like, you know, he's also not a big giant movie guy, but you know, these guys are going to bring a totally different viewpoint to the movies, which I, which I like. Yeah. Well, and as I said, if you want to, just in terms of cinematography, Lion is great. It's just really yeah. gorgeous cinematography and I would totally recommend it. Um, yeah. So I thought this, I thought there was, I had like nothing but awe for the cinematography. Well, actually one of the things I really liked, and I should point out that while he is to be totally commended for, for lighting and everything else. Gareth himself likes grabbing the camera and finding shots. I mean, oh, that's yeah. his thing. Like when he's blocking the set, he'll get the actors up. And he did that not only with an actual sort of viewfinder, but when they were doing stuff in the virtual world, again, he would get a camera at, now I'm talking about a virtual camera uh, inside the ILM sand stage and walk around and find those because you can walk around the star fields of the final battle and find shots that you like. And um, you know, and stack up stuff because you've got it um, on this virtual viewfinder in front of you, and that's how he does stuff rather than sort of doing storyboards a week ahead and yeah. and coming in the night before and saying it should be framed like this. He does do previews and stuff, but but he's very good at finding stuff. And I liked I how it was read, laid up. I was just going to say I haven't read a lot about that that ILM system. Like, is it is it similar in ways to the sort of. Um, I don't know, I can't remember what the name of it was, but the the system they developed on Avatar, is it a similar kind of setup? But I imagine something probably a bit more sophisticated at this point now that that's been, you know, 10 years. But is it a similar kind of setup, do you know, Mike? Well, I'm under embargo until the 30th of December for discussing it. But I can (laughs) say this, uh, before Star Wars, uh, Rogue One, I was on, uh, I did stuff on XLab and XLab had a Mm. system set up where, which they've now shown so I can talk about it, where... Um, they projected an environment on multiple walls and you stood in, in this case, it was a Jurassic set or on a Tatooine Mm -hmm. set. Again, I'm not talking about Rogue One. I'm talking about an independent ILM X-Lab demo. (laughs) Anyway, you stood on those sets with a, um, like an iPad effectively with a uh, tracking markers on it. And so it would track where you were looking and then it would change the projections on the walls that were projected at... Um, like football stadiums have logos on the ground that if you're not looking at it from the right mm-hmm. angle, look really warped. But for the TV cameras, right. they've got the right axis ratio. Yeah, okay. So like that. And so you're walking around and you're just finding, you know, okay, there's C3PPO, there's um, R2, whatever. And, or in my case, a uh, Raptor. And you can find any angle you want on those because you're effectively standing on a physical thing 
like a stage, which is um, which is a, a cave in uh, Disney speak, mm-hmm. and the cave has projected images on it, and so you're sort of walking around in this virtual space. So that's that's tech that they've been discussed, and they may have used that on Rogue One. Who know until December thirtieth? Yeah. But um, interesting. Uh, yes, yeah, it's yeah, almost like a, a it's like a VR setup without a helmet, but where it's a, pro- a live projection in a room. ILM has that technology. Whether they use it on this film, who knows? Yeah, interesting. I yeah, love that. Cool. Idea. I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense, you know, as a as a systemic way to go about doing it. If you can get that kind of real time computation and rendering uh, and projection to work in a well, space. Well, on that point, just again, and I'm not talking about Rogue One per, per se, but I am loving the move to trying to get as much physicality on set with digital stuff totally. as possible. So, from what we've seen already with Jungle Book, what we're seeing coming with. Um, uh, the next one, which is Lion King, and also with a whole lot of other films of just saying, hey, we're going to really be able to work this physical space, not on a blank stage with people in mocap suits where you've just got to imagine it all or sitting up in another room looking at it while everyone's running around you know, 80 yards away from you and you're trying to sort of communicate, but actually up there with the actors uh, in virtual spaces. And I think that is so interesting and that tech that idea of like live stuff really is dovetailing in with the studio strategies on vr and ar because Mm -hmm. a lot of the same tech is required for that now i'm not saying that they are using vr helmets but this virtual production technology is the same stuff that you use for a lot of the vr and a lot of games even things like um deepwater horizon you know had a vr kind of experience immersive thing going on with it right so increasingly the effects companies are knowing that when they're building, say, a Harry Potter, or rather it was a Fantastical Beast, they're going to produce a Fantastical Beast VR experience. That's what Framesaw did. And they shared the same assets uh, into both of those. And that virtual production is the culmination of what we've been talking about. Because if you guys are, if we were having this conversation five years ago, we'd be talking about the end of post and how post was now moving into production. But Mm -hmm. that's the realization of that as just being far more than just being, it was like the post was being started earlier and overlapped with production, but now it is seamlessly being interwoven. I don't know what you guys think, but that's my. Oh well, yeah, and it's like those huge, those huge systems. Like, and I think it was in Gravity, where they had the yeah. the lights, uh, you know, orienting around the actor in Gravity, and then that's a similar, uh, but different, a different but similar kind of conceptual uh, systemic thing they did in um, was it. Oblivion, I think, right? Where they had outside oh, with the projection, the, um, yeah. Yeah, that they was did the projections outside the yeah. set and stuff. I mean, but but all that kind of stuff, you know, effects-oriented stuff, uh, yeah. bringing it into the actual shooting in camera, I think makes a huge difference. Yeah. Well, I can yeah. I can tell you from, uh, Mike, what you were saying um, about studios, you know, and VR stuff have, I can tell you, I, we've had multiple conversations with a number of studios and, and distributors about not only doing VR experiences, you know, with current and future productions integrating, you know, using either being able to get on a physical set and shoot something that's not, you know, CG, but a physical thing, but using the, the, production dollars from the actual physical production for the film that is already spending that money and dovetailing that into a VR experience and getting production value into a VR experience that they wouldn't, that they don't have to spend another $200,000 to build a set or that, that production cycle that we would step into, but also utilizing 
older assets and older films that have CG assets and plate assets that we can turn into a spherical, you know, usage to create, yep. you know, legacy IP into VR experiences. So it's, it's a interesting time, but it's, you know, good that all the, all the studios and all those people are thinking that way and certainly have Well, again, not stuff. discussing Star Wars, Rogue One, but <laughs> yeah. if we go back to um, uh, what's the robot thing that's not Transformers, um, you know, the uh, Pacific Rim. So oh, yeah. on Pacific Rim, John Knoll came up with the idea of getting out a moto, a spherical 360 of the environment and then just loading that in his iPad. And so you just orientate the iPad and like, you know, you sort of spin the ball of the world yep. until it lines up with the room that you're in. And then as you lift up the iPad, you see, oh, okay, up, up above, that's where the top of the um, Pacific Rim robot would be. And then over to the side, that's where the other one is. And you can show the two actors and they can actually sort of hold yep. this thing and move it in real time and say, oh, okay, I can see in this space then where I'd be looking. It's like a window into the world that we superimpose on the real world you're standing in. Now that's a simple version of it, but it's that spherical mapping. I mean, how close is that to what's going on when someone shoots a, a VR on a set and just does a simple, very simple stitched 360 VR, which I mean, right. I know is not really sort of what we would consider VR, Jason. I mean, that's like almost an insult to VR to call that full VR, but because it's, yeah. it's not stereo, it's not anything. But it's it's such a close link now between the two. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, u- utilizing all that stuff for both, you know, we'll call it flat production and you know cross production into VR, or vice versa. I mean, I would love to be able to stand, and I do it often with just like a theta or something. You know, if I'm if I need to sell something down the chain, or if I need to do something on set and say, okay, well, here, look, boom. This is what's going on. I can do it on my phone. You know what I mean? Obviously having a huge render of, you know, of uh, a set extension or something that I could show an actor what they're going to be uh, interacting with is huge. And and then going all the way to the Avatar slash Rogue One uh, X-Lab type thing where where they have, you know, the technology to to frame up your own shots and see them in space you know, and then even say, oh, I want a tree here, you know, I okay, this shot's cool, but I want to obscure it. So give me a tree and a rock or whatever it is. Like that's way well, it more. Well, like it seems like a cool thing to do. Like I, we, I had a class this last semester, we did a 360 video class as an experiment where we had a bunch of Thetas and Kodak cameras and um, we had one of the GoPro rigs when it finally got delivered halfway through the semester. And, um, and it was really fun, you know, shooting stuff in 360 and then working to integrate different kinds of, you know, effects, after effects kind of stuff into it and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But um, we went to um, the Virginia Science Museum, which is right next to the campus. And we brokered a deal with them where we'd go there every other Monday because the museum is closed and they have an IMAX dome in there oh, that uses yeah. the Digistar system. Mm-hmm. And um, so we would go in there and we were having, you know, work that students were shooting being projected in the dome. And we got oh, to cool. see the whole sort of software setup of how they operate the um, the projectors on the dome. And, you know, they tear apart the, the video and then, you know, stitch it back together through the projection system all, you know, in real time. And I just kept thinking like, God, you know, it'd be so cool if, if uh, a studio, you know, you, why not build like a huge basically a spherical stage, uh, you know, with some kind of um, modular um, stage space where you could build out whatever you needed and you could have a whole projection environment in there to capture and shoot, um, yeah. 
you know, stuff in there and get you know, all the right lighting cues and whatever you needed mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how uh, you had stuff projected on the dome. So it would be like a I giant mean, it does ICT, seem like, ICT ball. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> I do think the same thing applies that they had Alan on stilts um, to play yeah. K2 on set because, again, you get that sort of interaction and eyeline stuff. I mean, we've done that before with and seen that before quite uh, quite a lot. But, I mean, that's all part of the same thing, right? Going to the trouble of, of doing these things really makes a difference. Um, a, a lot of the um, stuff we see in the film in terms of characters um, is makeup like this. You know, not all the characters are, yeah. we see are, are digital, so they lean to that way. Actually, before we get to characters, because I think that's going to, we're going to probably go there last, I just want to cover one last thing off, which is to say I really enjoyed the space battle. We've seen quite a lot of oh them. Oh, my God, yeah. But... That tug moment where it um, hit the side of the um, oh, yeah. uh, Star Cruiser and pushed it over and then it ripped the top of the other one off. And I just loved how they made the decision not to have just a giant fireball in space, but you kind of saw all this debris ripping apart in a really detailed yeah. way. Uh, I thought that was just really... And we've obviously seen a lot of space battles and this one wasn't as phonetic as... Um, was it well, episode three? But... Yeah, I thought they made it. Spielberg it like, directed. It felt like they made a big effort in this uh, to make a lot of the space battle stuff that was going on above the above the planet. It felt like a lot of it was um, set up with the cameras as well as the movement of the ships to really feel more like what you would do if you were shooting motion control models. It felt like a lot of the ships yeah. and fighters and stuff they looked like um, much more physical models than they looked like digital models and they were shot more like physical models too so that had that it had a flavor to it that was very um different i think that shot uh, the scene you're talking about mike in particular where the two star destroyers um you know the one is pushed into the other that was just, destroyers you know, or cruisers well whatever cruisers, get that right. star no cruisers. i mean i could be wrong I, <laughs> no they're star destroyers. destroyers they're just not but, uh, destroyers. Okay. is it it's star destroyers but is it executive class like in in uh, in Return of the Jedi, it's the executor. You know, that's that big giant one. That's right. the executive class Star Destroyer, so it's much bigger. Well, it's just like the the regular the yeah. regular ones. I interrupted I but, you. Yeah. Go on. But where yeah. they but where they where they do that kind of destruction? Yeah, it was great. There wasn't the huge fireball, but also that there was the um, uh, the way all the sort of. Um, the internal structure seems as though it's revealed yeah. as well too. It did, they felt like models, you know, that had been painstakingly built and constructed in the physical world with, you know, kit bashing and putting together all these little bits and pieces um, in such a fashion that as to when they, um, it sort of slices through the other one, you're seeing all these um, things, not only just on the surface shattering and breaking apart and um, crushing, but you're seeing stuff sort of on the internal side as well too. So it had a really great dynamic um, sort of simulation thing going on there. I will say it that might. the fight sequence in episode three, sorry, Revenge of the Sith, that, you know, yeah. the staged battle, that was my favorite space battle ever. And Spielberg directed that bit of yep. that third film. Um, but this would be a second for me in terms of, you know, choreography and clear line of sort of understanding what was going on rather than just having everything flying everywhere. But maybe that's just me. But I I kind of agree with Matt. Like I did I did really like that the one you're talking about, Mike, in episode three. But that one was bordering on the edge of like impossible camera because it was just in space yeah. and they would kind of fly around yeah. and do stuff. And and this one they stuck 
more to the sort of nodal pans that you would ha- yep. have in Star Wars. Like it's like, you know, it's a, it's a physical camera just tracking, panning to the left, panning up, panning down. Like it, it, it moved in, moved out a little bit, but they're really just pans half the time. And it, 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 that's the language we all know for Star Wars. And I think they stuck to that in a lot of ways, like you were saying, Matt, but the, even they even went like a little step further and did a little interstellar where they stuck a camera, you know, viewpoint to the ship as they were coming oh, totally. in to land. Yeah, that was cool. You know, you get yeah. the onboard kind of thing where you, you know, that's like more of the NASA view. You know, they mm-hmm. even actually in the beginning, it sort of opens with an interstellar shot, like a big wide, you know, a big wide thing with a tiny ship, you know. Um, yeah, the story, the storyboarding, the previs, you know, however yeah. they, I'm sure they probably did both, but third, the way they blocked out the these, previs. yeah, yeah, the I mean, way it was blocked out as a yeah. space battle and the 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 uh, fighters uh, that enter the atmosphere too. I thought the way they uh, set all that up, it was it was yeah. very Star Wars, but it was there was even parts of it though, like you're saying, yeah, that felt fresh too, like that it felt like it was kind of going in a slightly new direction. So it was a great combination of the two. And I think that's the stuff, you know, for my money, like just maybe it's nostalgia too as a kid, but that's just some of the stuff that ILM does best, you know, is that kind of space battle stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so cool. It's like, it's the bread and butter, I think of, or, or maybe the, um, you know, the the foundation of that uh, core business of the company, you know, sort of what got them their start. And so to see them go back and to have, you know, John Knoll supervising and the whole team working on it to generate that, that aesthetic and that look and to try to recapture some of that look, but at the same time to um, introduce some new elements. I just thought it was phenomenal. So great. It's the well, depending on when you guys are listening to this, on, these, yes. <laughs> on the 2nd or 3rd of January, depending on where you are in the world, um, we'll actually have our FX Guide story on this where we'll discuss how they did that space battle uh, in more detail. But now we should swing to the characters. Um, Wait, I just want to add one thing yep. about what you were saying about the way the ships hit each other. I think, you know, a lot of times we lose the fact of of the the physical nature of space. And I think what was great is you had this giant ship and this tiny ship that once it's not being powered, it's just floating in space and its inertia is whatever it's being given, right? So this little tiny ship could push this big giant ship because it just has to kind of ding mm-hmm. it in one direction. and But it's still a giant ship moving. So when it hits another something, it's still that mass traveling at, at a speed. like it, it And all of that red with zero exposition, right? Also, well, yeah, it's like it's like seeing a tugboat push push yeah. a uh, cruise ship into port or a tanker. Yeah, or yeah. Something that's what like I thought. That. I thought um, it was very yeah. much a tug- and I like the but, crumpling of the side of it as it connected with yeah. it as well. But also the, the, the the Admiral Akbar guy, you know, called it, you know, bring out the Hammerhead Corvette. And I was like, wait, did he just <laughs> fucking call it a Hammerhead Corvette? <laughs> this that's super Lucas, right? It's got to be yeah. something out of an early draft of Star Wars. But I'm like, all right, great. It's like space print. <laughs> or American graffiti. You know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like space, <laughs> space Prince song, okay, Hammerhead but, Corvette. <laughs> but I'm now going to swing you to the thing that I think all uh, of our listeners want to get your opinion on, which is the um, multiple digital doubles, as it were, the digital acting provided by the digital characters in the likeness of people we knew. Um, so, Matt, why don't you lead off the fray? Uh, what did we think of these quite gutsy attempts to provide us with actual acting 
performances from either dead or actors that are no longer um, looking anything like they did when they were younger uh, in the film? Uh, well, so I, I've thought a lot about it and uh, I do have some some thoughts about it in particular. I, I will say this at the outset. One of the things that um, I've always most admired about uh, John Knoll um, is that, you know, from the, I don't think I ever worked on a John Knoll show while I was at ILM, uh, but uh, I always admired something that I, I think he says in, in an interview, um, I can't remember from where, but where he talks about, um, he's talking about visual effects and he talks about how, you know, a lot of times people will say that the best visual effects are the ones that you don't see, you know, and, and he says, well, that's true. He said, but, and then he, he goes on to say, but one of the things that he always loves about effects is when they just go for it and you go for something huge and really big and like kind of over the top and, you know, these bombastic, like unbelievably gigantic effects too. And that those are really fun and equally exciting. And I think it's really, you know, kind of cool to hear, uh, somebody working at that level who's, who's, um, you know, really at the top, uh, and still, you know, thinking about pushing the envelope. And so in, in my sort of assessment of those effects, I would say that I think this was definitely an attempt to like go big, you know, and like push the envelope and see like, all right, let's make two, um, you know, fully digital, uh, humanoid characters, that people are going to recognize and let's just go for it and see what we can do. And um, that being said, I think when they're not moving, they're incredible. They're incredible digital recreations and likenesses of both uh, Tarkin, who we see many, many times in the film. Um, and in some shots, I think, and in some uh, places works really well. And in other places, um, I, there's something just about the movement, about the lack of movement or the movement of the head or the face or something that just is not quite, it just doesn't quite work. It's, there's something that's just off. It's hard to place. And then the, um, but, but when he's not moving, there's one long shot where he's sort of like a reaction and he's very subtly moving, but he's not speaking. Um, and he's watching, I think, somebody walk out of the room. Maybe Krennic has walked out, I think. And uh, he's watching him walk away and we sort of, he's hero, you know, framed up in the center of the frame. And um, it looks spectacular. It looks really, really good. Um, and then the, uh, the Carrie Fisher uh, digital one at the end, where she turns uh, to face camera, we see her from behind, and she's sort of got her her veil up, kind of over her her hair, and she turns to you know, she gives that kind of hokey line about like they brought us hope, you know. She's all like, kind of a little overly happy, but that one um, uh, again, I think as a still, it looks really great, but in motion, there's again something that's just, you know, the ambition I think should be applauded, and I think it's so close to working, but I, I, for me, at least I, they just don't work. Like they, it's still not quite there. I feel like it's the kind of stuff that in another like 10 years from today, like we're going to look at those shots and be like, yeah, those were pretty rough. You know, that's what I think. <laughs> Jason. Um, you kind of hit it on the head. Uh, I, I didn't know there was going to be Tarkin in the film. So there's this moment of, but it makes total sense, right? Like you have to have him 
it makes sense that he would be there. It's interesting to see how he takes credit for Krennic's work. Yeah. And like, you know, Krennic himself as a villain to deal with. Like, as a story point, it's brilliant and it's perfect. And so you have to have Tarkin. So just the conversation of well, how are we going to do that is like, well, fuck it. We're going to, he's going to be fully digital and we're just going to put him in. Like I applaud, I'm with you, Matt. Like you have to applaud the idea and the, and the guts to just, well, just be like, the we're ambition, gonna, yeah, the, the ambition to, to just be totally. like, we're doing it and it doesn't matter. And to that point, my wife, who's fairly well visually educated at this point, we've been together 20 years, you know, she was like, because we were all talking about it and some of my uh, friends who were DPs were with us when we saw it and with my kid and my brother and what have you. And we we're all talking about the digital character and she's like, who was digital? You know what I mean? Like, so it didn't even matter to her. Like she didn't, it didn't stand out to her. It didn't, there was nothing about it. Like she's, she's not a massive Star Wars nut either. So like I automatically know that Peter Cushing is dead. So like I, I know that's a fake person regardless of whether it's digitally well executed or not, right? But to subtly move into it and start with the reflection and the glass and like all that kind of stuff. And then you're like, oh shit, it's Tarkin. And then he turns and you're like, okay, he's completely digital and I don't care, right? Like there's there's a story reaction and then there's a technical reaction. And I think the story reaction was, this is awesome. I'm glad right. they did it. And it totally works. And I, and I want this in the story as a fan and as a theater goer viewer. I want mm -hmm. the story point. So I, I will give whatever I need, you know, intellectually and technically to it and let those things go. Even though I see them and if they bother me, I don't care because A, the guts and ambition to do it and the execution is like 98% and it, you know, we know that the 2% is the hardest, that last two to 5% is always the hardest for anything. Right. So like, that's not a knock. That's not a negative. That's just, I think it worked as well as it could given what they can do now. And to your point, Matt, like, yeah, in 10 years, we're going to look back and be like, and be like, wow, why did everyone accept that? You know what I mean? Because look at this, like, here's, Jack Nicholson, he's been dead for three years and he's in a new movie. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> and which goes, why isn't you know, Keith Richards dead? He should be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, but, but they all worked for me. The princess Leia, I think just overall was a little softer and squishier, you know, as a, as an execution than Tarkin was. Uh, she had maybe a couple, little more flaws to, and her line just is not great. So it kind of, you're like, uh, but Tarkin as a whole, I, I had no issue with it given, even given the negatives. What was the name of the actress that is the one that we all expected to, okay. So there's the woman that's around the, you know, holding court when they're trying to work out whether or not to go for, um, and it was a, a double, an actress, a, a lookalike, you know, the one I'm talking about? She's the yeah, one that. Mon Mothma. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So if that's for that for me was a 10. Like if I didn't know and I wasn't thinking about it, I'd have just said that's the same actress, right? That was like a mm -hmm. 10. Yeah. I think um for me the next I'm only going in in whole unit increments here guys. <laughs> for me the next one is um I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger 
in um, the last Terminator that MPC did was a more convincing digital likeness of somebody that I knew. And I should also point out here that if you know the actor, uh, and I'm not saying anything that I think others haven't said, but if you know the actor, it's actually significantly harder to pull this off than if you don't know them. So if you show me someone and say it's a digital double, I don't know the actor, I'm probably going to buy it a lot, a lot easier than if you show Mm -hmm. me Leia who, you know, let's face it, gentlemen, the three of us were teenagers (laughs) when she was in the gold bikini. We studied that woman's face. And so so there's no doubt that that makes it harder. But I would say that neither her or or crushing was quite as convincing as uh, the Schwarzenegger and the Schwarzenegger wasn't quite as convincing as the having an actress that looked like uh, her and had they um, had someone that looked like crushing, I would Cushing. have, yeah. Cushing, sorry, I would have uh, bought that. Um, sure. I think that's a great analogy. Like, and you're, you're making like a great, I, I would a hundred percent agree with you on, on the, um, the, the lookalike actor and on the, um, the Schwarzenegger um, double from the, the last Terminator movie. I think, you know, it's, you're, I, I totally agree. I think that's perfect, perfect uh, assessment. <laughs> like I think that it's, I agree with you, Jason, that it's great that they went for it to do a, um, a Peter Cushing like character. Like I think that was a really brave thing to do and we, we're, we're never going to get there unless somebody does it and you yeah. can't do it unless you've got the budget and the everything that you get from a big film. That being said, um, I'm also more aware of this than than I imagine a, a standard punter. My wife, again, you know, obviously hangs around with visual effects people but not in the industry, thought that there was something not quite right with that character. Um, and again, uh, I would say the same thing for me applied for, for Leia. Um, but, but in the Peter Cushing stuff, there were some of them that were better than others. I actually thought yeah. that the second time, I think the second lot of shots we saw of him were better than the first lot. The first yeah. time he appeared on screen... Um, he was a little more fake for me than he was you, the, the next time around. But do you think that's because you were, I mean, I don't know if you knew he was, you know, based on who you talk to on a regular basis, if you knew that he was going to be in it and be digital. Because, yeah, no, I, I, I knew, yeah, I mean, I knew I just right, go, but, so Right, so I didn't. So then the first time I see him, I'm studying the the performance and the thing and the thing and the thing and the thing to to know that he's fake and everything. So the second time, it's like seeing a movie a second time. No, like, okay. no, no. It was actually, I think, now a, better, I can, a better solve the second time out. Like the no, first that's what shots. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The second time, maybe because you now are, oh, you understand that he's digital and whatever, you are sitting back a little and maybe being less critical no, on no, the second I'm saying, time you see him absolutely, in the- Absolute terms, some shots were better than others. And that, that they were not, they were not yeah. identical to me. And if you'd swapped the order, I'd have said then the okay. first yeah. shots were good and the second shots weren't. Uh, I would have to also add in the lookalike character, like human uh, doubles, the guy they got to play General Dodonna, the old guy that you know stands next to Mon Mothma. I <laughs> yep. thought in the first time you see him, I was like. Because I knew that they had put in shots, you know, of like, you know, Red Leader and Gold Leader and stuff like that from the <laughs> yeah, Star that was Wars. Awesome. I was like, okay, they just comped in a shot of General Dodonna from like Star Wars, like looking around. 
Like, because they <laughs> nailed that dude too, like nailed. And and so I, did, I don't get taken out of the film at all. Um, so it's impressive to watch impressive visual effects. I, could, I, I get your point, yeah. Matt, and I think that, um, that that's a, a really important point. Like, uh, and here's the other question you've got to ask yourself. People talk about the uncanny valley as, and I think we've discussed this, as, you know, being, mm-hmm. ye, you know, yay or nay. But the question is, did you find Leia unsettling, unnerving, or did you just find it not 100% real? Because it's possible that they get out of the, the valley, but you can still, she doesn't look upsetting, but you can tell she's digital. In the same yeah. way that like you would tell that uh, Jar Jar Binks was, was a digital character. He didn't look like he was 100% standing there on set. You didn't go, is that makeup or is that a digital character? But... But just in rendering terms, he wasn't upsetting. Now, obviously, he might have been upsetting in character terms, but that's that's not my point. I mean, it didn't bother think? me. It didn't bother me from a like like they look like mannequins, you know, and and it doesn't work. I mean, I think I think I was being just more critical of like facial animation and rendering and things like that. I think he looked like he was you know needed you know was there and having a conversation. Now, the other thing is you're putting him standing next and having conversations with Ben Mendelsohn, which is like, yep. you know, looking at a, is that a real Porsche or is that a, you know, Bugatti, <laughs> Bugatti Veyron next to it? Like you're looking at like top class, you know, he's one of the best actors alive right now. So you're like, you're giving yourself an even higher bar by being like, okay, this guy's talking to nobody. And there's a digital character who's got a match performance to him. Like, you know, so, so even on top of that, like I still f- felt like, you know, like the eye lines were fine, and I didn't feel like I was staring into like a robot's face uh, in the in the uncanny valley, which I think that term gets thrown. Like I couldn't even I saw that about a million times on Facebook, and I wanted to shoot somebody. But I mean, I uh, assume they must have done this. But an interesting thing to do would have been to take their digital double and like you know match performance from a scene from the original Star Wars movie. I would imagine use, they did that. And use the actor, vo- the actor's actual voice too and see, you know, it, it, they must have done that, right? I mean, it's like, so that would be interesting to see only in that those are, for me at least, as someone who knows <laughs> who knows Star Wars all too well, like probably most everybody listening, um, uh, you know, that would be something that for me would be easier to sort of, almost in a weird way judge more appropriately. I feel like this was harder to judge in that it wasn't the same voice. It was in a different scene, yeah. um, in a different context. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I It's one of those ones that, you know, I, I, I kept thinking about not just the animation and not just some of the subtle facial movements, but about the, the lip sync as well yeah. as the, um, as well as like, it almost looked as if, they went for a kind of a, a lifelike realism where they neglected, um, which I'm sure they didn't. I feel stupid even saying they would have neglected it. But um, but it, to me, I, I kept thinking, you know, when they're on the set in the 1976 or whatever and they're working with the actor, like, you know, they put so much like, you know, powder and makeup on that guy. Like he, he yeah. almost looked kind of dusty. Yeah. And in this, he looked, he looked more like, you know, subsurface yeah. scattering and kind of, kind of almost yeah, like sweaty rosy. and wet, yeah. you know, like rather than having I agree, I kind of spec was, spec was what I would have been focused on adjusting. 
in a pantheon of experts <laughs> that would have been <laughs> yeah. offering opinion. Um, sure. Yes, that would be my um, put my hand up. From a from and, a humanistic performance, though, if you look, if you remember or try to think about Tarkin's or Cushing's performance in Star Wars, he's almost never moving really. Yeah, he's and when stiff. he does, you yeah. never really see him full body. So he just has that kind of like tr- like triangular, like wide shoulder. He's not he's not a wide guy, but just his the the uniform gave him that sort of like slightly smaller waist, slightly wider shoulders, kind of mm-hmm. triangular, like almost like he looks like a sketch kind of, you know, like yeah, you totally. sketch a body, yeah. like and he just kind of <laughs> moves in this very Vader kind of like, you know, way. And he's very subtle, stilted English body movements, you know. So But if you but if you watch like that, that scene in the the conference room scene, like if you yeah. watch that scene of him, he's he has much his eyes move like side yeah. to side. He really acts yeah. a lot with his eyes too, in a way that yeah. I don't know that the digital double did that quite in the same fashion. At least, well, that's you know, the thing you're taking an actor who acts with his face and then making him digital, which is the hardest thing to animate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and that's why it's it's it again. It's like that's why it's you kind of have to applaud the effort too. You know, it's like it's such a like yeah. It's a big. It's but it's a it's. It's tough, you know, and I think for anybody who grow, grew up as a Star Wars fan, going in and watching that and seeing that that character that everybody remembers from their childhood and seeing him, you know, brought back to life, it's so exciting and so cool. But it's like you're going up against like the most nerdy <laughs> judges you'll ever oh, possibly yeah. have, you know. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think I think um, like I'm glad they did it, but I wouldn't say that you would want to greenlight a film with more of screen time devoted to a character, which brings me to a really interesting point. They've already done that, right, which is um, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the first 52 minutes of that film doesn't have the lead actor who's otherwise central to the plot showing his own face on screen. And so, um, you know, that sounds like it's completely against what I just said, except for I think that it's easier when you're making somebody look older or look different um, in the same way it's easy to do, easier to do a golem than it is to do a, a layer. But, I mean, sure. there was no way I think right now we'd want to have um, the next Star Wars film with, you know, 32 minutes of digital layer on screen kind of thing in the, um, in the you know, no, backstory definitely. of, of uh, Han Solo or whatever. So... You know, yes, they kind of got away with it in this, and I think it's really interesting, and it makes for an interesting um, kind of uh, aspect to the show, um, and it drives the craft forward. But it didn't, it didn't for me produce a convincing replacement of an actor, and certainly, I think that um, that while this will be a moment uh, to be looked back on as a sort of a really key stepping stone, um, it won't get judged as favorably as we now look back on the miniature work of the original 77 Star Wars with kind of, that was still looks pretty good, you know what I mean? I mean, it doesn't look perfect, yeah. but it still looks way better than it should given how many years it's been since we did the 77 version. And um, and I don't think, you know, when we're this far away from this film, if you do the math and what, I mean, how many years is 77 away? I can't do that math in my head. But anyway, um, it's, <laughs> you it's obviously... You can't do the math in your head? Well, then yeah, no, none of us can group, if you can't yeah. do it. Jesus. Oh, all right. It's it's 39 <laughs> years. Right. So 39 years from now, we won't look back on this and say, 
you know, that that was still stands up pretty well. Um, there's just no way. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good analogy for sure. Um, it's, it's going to need to happen that we do this to get there, but we're yet to have that film where you go. And I know somebody else said this online and I, so I'm not original. It's like everything else in the film was pretty indistinguishable from reality, or oh, at yeah. least it worked inside the film language that we've come to accept clearly actors are lit with their own light so they're not actually real um, and they have sympathetic lighting that makes them look good even though the contact lighting from the room wouldn't give them that. But if we, if we stay inside the, the sort of the world of film language, then there's nothing else I reckon you can point out in this film that is as far away from imperceptibly real as the digital characters are from imperceptibly real actors. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the spaceships are equally far away from what I imagined spaceships would look like or for that matter, characters running on the ground or explosions or fireballs or water sims or anything else like that. You know, some of those well, things, yes, we can criticise them, but they're not as far away as I felt these characters were from, from perfection. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I, you know, even to that very point, like I was actually thinking of another couple of things that we might want to touch on too is, you know, the Death Star, for one, as a as a thing on screen, which I thought was totally amazing, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know, did they did they build any physical models for any of these things? <laughs> like, I would I'm not, I wouldn't think so, but I mean, it looked incredible. The close-ups um, of the Death Star, um, you know, the, the uh, what do you call it, the, the landing uh, bays or whatever. Yeah. Um, and all the little windows and detail I thought was just insanely good. And the, the Star Destroyers too, when we see the big Star Destroyers yeah. um, up close, I mean, how much they actually looked like to my mind's eye, what I remember of seeing those huge models um, on screen, you know, in the Cynodome in, you know, Orange, California, growing up as a kid, I remember those models just looking massive and looking so cool and so detailed. And the level of detail and the, the interplay of light and shadow that they got off of all the small details in the sort of um, edge of the wedge shape, you know, where the thickness of it, where there's all those little mm -hmm. bits and pieces and stuff, and all that shadow and interplay that they got in the, the sort of harsh... Um, you know, kind of directional light uh, in space. I thought that stuff was just spectacular. And and I think actually weirdly indistinguishable from the physical models that we grew up with, you know. So that's an interesting one where the digital recreation of it um, is so adherent to um, that aesthetic and look that they pursued um, in generating it digitally. They It seems like they really they connected the two in a really neat way. It was really impressive to see. I thought it looked better than some of the stuff um, of the big ships in uh, Force Awakens. Yeah, I, I totally yeah. think that the... <laughs> I mean, the, it has that okay. same... It had a more Star Wars look to it, I guess. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, it kind of had to, right? I mean, Force Awakens is, is like 30-something uh, years at least after yeah, yeah after Star Wars and this one is like minutes <laughs> from Star Wars so it has to I, mean, I guess I'm just saying I think that would exactly be exactly the same yeah. it seems like no, it would I mean, be a hard thing to match digitally yeah. to make it yeah. look analog almost in that regard I, and I feel like it it did somehow <clears throat> yeah I thought all those ships looked looked amazing I even like that they 
that for the first test of the Death Star, the Death Star was actually upside down. You know what I mean? Oh, it yeah. Shot, yeah. It shot yeah. with the dish down and, uh, and yeah. also cutting in all the old shots of the dudes in the switcher rooms, you know, you know, with that all that. That was so funny, guys, wasn't it? The old the guys, Grass Valley yeah. 300 switcher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love, and I, I love, love that, that the dudes, the dudes standing right next to the beam that's going to yep. destroy yep. a planet, just kind of duck. Yep. They like shield yeah, yeah, lasers to the children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no heat. Lasers don't give off heat. It's fine, you know, like uh, or radiation or anything yeah. else that's gonna yeah just yeah um, fry your but, jeans. I mean, what did you think about like there was obviously the more modern effect was when Jetta City gets destroyed. I mean, that, that was wave, so, the rock wave. That was you fantastic. Know. I thought. yeah, I love that. That was probably one of my favorite effects in the whole movie. Like just that huge destruction, Sam. I just thought it was so Moving gorgeous so and the slow too. Yeah, the scale great. of it yeah, was, yeah, yeah, was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really good. I mean, that's that the and thing the that I like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. No, I'm just gonna say, like, we're gonna we're gonna see the world pretty much discussing, especially coming up to the Oscars, just how good um, you know the a digital Princess Leia is, and it's a, in a sense going to be uh, something that overshadows the conversation for the immense quality of the sim work and uh, of mm-hmm. the lighting work mm-hmm. and of the modeling work that the team and I have done. And it's kind of a shame that yeah. we're going to zero in on that and put the other stuff in a shadow, which is why I didn't want to lead this the effects show off with the discussion of those digital characters. Because in terms of screen time, it's a relatively small amount. In yeah. terms of shot count, it's a relatively small amount of the amount of work that was done. Now, obviously, incredibly key work and really high profile and worth discussing. But yeah, that sim stuff was just gorgeous. And and right down to, I, I've got to say, like the, I was saying, touched on it before, but like some of the framing up of those visual effects shots, just to how it's stacked up in the frame mm-hmm. and the choreography of it, it was just really nice virtual cinematography, really well, good. Well, and K2 um, flying the ship through the, through through the, the debris. The debris felt like, you know, there's a similar shot in uh in Force Awakens, but there's also a similar shot in Fury Road when they go through yeah. the sandstorm. You know what I mean? Like the, having that immense kind of like scale, this tiny ship navigating like, you know, how are they gonna punch through? Like they're literally it's like and not to make another Star Wars reference, but it's like when they're in the mouth of the worm in the asteroid and they're flying Except out. Except I think it was more successful than that because that always yeah. felt to me like a hand puppet. Yeah, but but I'm saying in in the concept of it coming out and then they see the teeth and they just kind of spin through it. Same thing, yeah. like this is, these rocks are just crushing down on them and he's just kind of, you know, finding his way through it. But just prior to that, there's not many shots VFX outside of like major you know, things we're talking about, like full characters and stuff, just actual shots. There's, there was only one, I think maybe two, there's two, one that really jumped out at me uh, from a, just, I think it's just a scaling issue. When the, when the, they do a wide shot of Jetta City and the Star Destroyer that's hovering above it is taking off. Mm -hmm. It, only in that one like shot of it, like they look in, they're talking, and then they cut to it, and it looked super small, but it hadn't really left yet. It just sort of turned to leave, mm-hmm. and it, like the scale looked really weird to me. I just remember in the theater <laughs> being like, "Oh, what? That's kind of weird." 
Yeah, like maybe it was foreshortening I mean, it, or something. It but could like, be the the vanishing point too of a triangle. Yeah. Like it's because it's yeah. you're dealing with perspective, and then you're dealing with a ship that's a giant triangle. <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah. it's like I mean, it's kind it, it of may like have the worst. Physically been correct, but I think yeah. visually it needed to be adjusted. Like it may actually physically be this ship, and they just turned the model and whatever. But visually, it just looked weird in the in the the placement of it. Like it maybe it needed to be more, you know, along the along the uh, X or something, you know, just to be a little more vertical, just or horizontal rather, just to feel it. Yeah, it was like it was it. moving sort of away from yeah. camera, like off to screen left kind of, but it was yeah. like a diagonal angle. Yeah, so I think yeah. that I, I would argue that probably is the reason for any kind of foreshortening and scale issues too, only because then yeah. you're you're sort of putting another vanishing point. If you think of the ship a as vanishing a vanishing point, point yeah. <laughs> perspective-wise into yeah. like the wrong part of the vanishing point of yeah. the frustrum of the camera, you know? So you're, yeah. you're looking at it from a really weird angle yeah. at that point. But I actually thought those shots were really cool. Like, I mean, I think I, that's not something that I noticed actually in those, but I thought those shots of It was the, just one. It was literally one shot. Everything else like- when it starts to exit and they're walking in towards foreground, yeah. right? Towards yeah. the cave where uh, Forrest Whitaker, who yeah. for some reason decides that he just doesn't give a shit anymore. And he's like, I'm just going to stay here and die. Like what? Well, because he's like all half machine at this point. He's like- the- Yeah, there's stuff going on there in backstory. Because like he's, there are some shots that his head was shaved and others that he wasn't in the trailer and stuff. Like I think <laughs> from when he rescued her from the uh, yeah. initial- um, uh, where mothers killed and stuff, but yeah, oh, ice, I think that's Iceland. a little. Can I just say though that one thing that we've had a bit of a go at Force Awakens, but I do think in terms of this thing about down on the planet, that stuff down on the planet with the crashed uh, Imperial cruisers or or destroyers in the dust stuff in Force Awakens was mm-hmm. some of the most gorgeous art directed shot design oh, yeah. scale work. Of course, it yeah. felt so big and so marvelous. And uh, I mean, we didn't have anything quite in this film that hit me with that kind of taken something out of context from Star Wars and shown it to me in a new way and made me kind of breathtaking. I mean, I would have a poster of that on the wall. It was just gorgeous. Yeah, you know? it's my desktop at my office. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't have this. That, yeah. They didn't have those same kind of like you know that that image that you're speaking of from Force Awakens to me. It's like that's straight out of like you know the old school Ralph McQuarrie playbook yeah. of like creating yeah. a production painting that is encapsulating a sense of design, a sense of place, a sense of time, a sense of scope, scale, story, all of it's in, in sort of ensconced in, you know, that style of, of image. And I think in this movie, it's, it is a smaller story. The scale is still large, but um, I think what yeah. uh, they did in this story that was different was rather than have some of those massive kind of set pieces, although I think there are a few, and I think the image of the Star Destroyer over the the city uh, in Rogue One is similar. Um, <laughs> literally, you know, the, shot the that, same the ship, shot, but Yeah, but the only shot that really like wowed me for taking stuff out of context, giving it to me in a new way was, and it was, I think it was in the trailer, but it was certainly in the film where you've got them running through sort of a half a foot of water down on the beach kind of area. And -hmm. you've got stormtroopers in the kind of surf, as it were, or the edge of the water, you know, on the beach. And like that was, it was sort of apocalypse now meets, 
I don't know what, yeah. but it was like, I just was waiting for kind of like a class Charlie doesn't surf, Charlie don't surf kind of <laughs> vibe. It was just really good cinematography, really fresh to see the stormtroopers like that. And, and it looked cool. I mean, it just was a cool well, shot. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. Force Awakens is the first Star Wars movie to sort of give us like on-planet um, X-Wing and TIE fighter fighting, right? Because usually it's always in space. Yep. Um, and I think in this case, they took it one step further and they're like, okay, now we're going to have a Star Destroyer hovering in in atmosphere, right? But yep. the thing I th- really liked was, and uh, I think it was, was it at the end? Is it, it's, is it Krennic who gets like blown off his feet by the ship taking off? Somebody gets blown off their feet by a ship taking off i forget maybe I it's think it was oh no it's gin on the city yeah she character. it happens to her in the on the edu that or platform whatever. on the yeah rain in the raining or platform yeah um that's the first time i think they've ever shown anyone being affected by the like the jet wash of a starfighter <laughs> yeah you know what I mean? Like, which mm, I was like, true. oh, that's awesome. Like, normally you would think like, okay, there's a Star Destroyer hovering over a city. Is there something, like, we don't know how that works, but you would think there would be some issue with some force being repelled off the bottom of the ship, or I don't know, obviously we're speculating on not real technology, <laughs> but there's a yeah. ship hanging over a city. Like, would there be any sort of you know, impact to the city when it takes off and blows a wall down because you have this, you know, <laughs> thing the size of a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, an aircraft carrier or bigger, you know, flying around. But um, I I like that, that at least clearly they're thinking about like new ways to use the the old techno, old, you know, visual styles, like you were saying, Mike, in Force Awakens, that works because that tells, you know, everyone's been waiting what's happened since episode, you know, six. And just see, seeing a crashed AT-AT that she lives in or a crashed, you know, Star Destroyer tells you everything without having to be expository about it. Yeah. And in this case, we don't need that because we we're not there yet. Like in the, everything's still fresh. Yep, yep, yep. I'm totally with you. Hey, yeah, we're kind of running out of time, guys. So uh, I guess I just gave you my favorite shot of the film, which is that one on the beach uh, running. Is there any either great shot you want to just highlight in finishing up or shot that you were hanging out for or didn't like just uh, to close us out? Can I just say I loved all the little Easter eggs? The okay. <laughs> Just the character Easter eggs like Pondo Baba and Dr. Evazon. You know, I like that some of those are too much. I thought felt, I, some of them felt so like shoehorned into the. It's fun. <laughs> I like it. The in the walking through Jetta City, and there's like an Imperial probe droid that just sort of skirts the yeah. frame, you know, in the back. But, oh yeah, that but, guy was cool. The silver bug eyed dude. To no, me, that was like the, no. The silver bug eye guy is the original C three PO Macquarie design. But there's I love a that thing. Imperial probe droid from from the from Hoth that's like sort of uh, goes by in the background in one. He's like no, just, just ditches that. the frame in the back. But actually more... And there's a ton of that stuff, right? There's yeah, the yeah. Stormtrooper conversation about the T-15. Or yeah. yeah, that was yeah. good. Being <laughs> and yeah, blue milk, gonna be, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and even, they even give the blue milk like a slow, dramatic push. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but um, 
What is it about moms though in the Star Wars universe? Yeah. Like if you have a baby and you're in the Star Wars universe, like yeah. you're dead mate. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. Like yeah. yeah, but this is the first Star Wars film that had a female as the lead. I mean, completely the lead, right? She was like uh, Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose so. Still. Um, no, no, she was. She but really if she has, a, if she wound up having a kid, she'd be dead in a few minutes. <laughs> fried. Well, she was dead anyway, right? Yeah. She, well, she yeah. Survived <laughs> she got fried. Yeah. There's a little uh, deep impact. I'm know. just saying. I, you know, I gotta give it to the moms out there. You know. Um, but I think, <laughs> outside of visual effects, my favorite stuff was just like, like I said earlier, like cutting in footage from Star Wars into it to really, you know dial it in and really like, like make the, you know, the hands clenched, you know, fingers are locked together, you know, like that guy's flying off to that thing. That guy's flying off to that thing. Uh, you know, um, I, I loved, you know, I, we, I was waiting, I was having a conversation with my friend, Mike, uh, before we went in and he's like, I just want to see Vader, like tear some shit up. And like the <laughs> fact that they gave him his moment to like come in and just like, you know, wreck the room and then be like, yep, yep, I, that's me. I can do that. You know, like all that stuff to me outside of filmmaking stuff was the most, was the most fun. And you know, like my, okay. my kid and just my kid sitting next to me and be, and, you know, elbowing me and being like, Oh, look at that. And look at that. And like, you know, I know Easter egg hunts are, you know, fun, but, uh, I was just so, so, I should, so. I should point out here in Jason's defense that while we're talking, the three of us, we're not in the same room. And we have, of course, communication that has our avatars up. And so Jason and mine are pictures of our heads. And you know what Matt's <laughs> is? A friggin' Imperial Stormtrooper helmet. So, you know, Matt, you're claiming no. that, uh, you know, yes. Well, I think well and my son's name is Lucas. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're uh, you know, we're all in. Over well, and I okay, was so Matt, a stormtrooper in that's the, true. the New Hope remake. Yeah. So you know, come on, I'm. I yeah, just, that's yeah. one of the highlights of my. Uh, yeah, I've seen my that picture. Young, you were, yeah. you were a stormtrooper. So. Hey, and and you survived. <laughs> Is there any shot or anything you want to highlight? I mean, I think for me, uh, I still think probably. Uh, probably two things that really stick out in my mind. I think I love the destruction of Jeddah. I think that was a really amazing um, feat um, and the way uh, it worked within the context of the story. I thought it was a great Star Wars moment and it was such massive destruction. It felt horribly, um, you know, tragic and, and uh, apocalyptic, but at the same time too, it like provided a you know, much needed sort of kick in the story, uh, moving it forward. I thought that was just a spectacular effect. And then there's actually one shot that, um, <laughs> it's probably not the most dramatic, but it was one that felt so, it, it felt kind of return of the Jedi ish in a way for me that I thought was cool was, um, when the, uh, the, the fleet arrives and there's the space battle begins around the, the gate mm. Um, I loved it. There was one shot where all of a sudden you see a massive uh, sort of phalanx of TIE fighters launch oh, um, yeah. and they move from screen left sort of off into screen yep. right. And there's a ton of them. I mean, there's probably, yeah. I don't Swarm. know, yeah. 40 or 50 of those ships and they're all kind of flying slightly at different speeds and maybe slightly different vectors like going off to attack particular ships. And that little moment where you're like, uh-oh, here we go. Like this is about to get crazy. I thought it was cool because it really sort of highlighted and lit up Oh, and actually one other, one other shot that I really dug was when they, um, 
they blew up the um the the walker on the planet and it was a shot from above and they blew up one that was i guess they were supposed to be carrying cargo in that big center yeah. section yeah. and they blew up yeah they blew up the one that had no cargo in it and when it blew up and it started to sort of explode and collapse as sort of the the thinner part of the structure um sort of gave way first, you know, where there was no cargo in the middle piece. It looked so, uh, like really cool, but it also looked really like one of the old, um, stop motion, uh, effects at the same time. Like it had a great, it was another one of those ones that to me, it felt like it was right in between like the digital and practical, like they made a a digital effect look like an old practical effect, but in a way that was really tasteful and way within the, kind of the the Star Wars universe and genre of effects, like how it's not physically real necessarily, but it's, um, well, or it, maybe it is physically real, but it's not maybe physically real to scale. And I thought that was also a really neat and, and uh, fun looking effect. So, I mean, a lot of great stuff, so many things in it that um, from an effect standpoint that I really, really enjoyed from a, from a, My- Script My producers standpoint. just pointed out to me that everybody probably knows that you did play a stormtrooper. So do you want to, for those that don't know, we weren't joking just then. You actually oh, yeah. donned the helmet. Just give us the... The, the short story is just like, well, I worked I mean, at... Yeah. I worked at, IL, I worked at ILM um, right out of film school. I worked there from 1992 until I left, uh, I think right, at, right before the millennium is when I left and I moved to New York City um, to go work for... Uh, that artist Matthew Barney, but um, so while I was at ILM, I uh, you know worked my way up and learned everything I know about computer graphics. Really, at the time, um, in the early days there, and when uh, George decided he was going to come back and he was going to do the special editions, which I know anytime I tell people I worked on the special editions, I people are like, oh, so I have you to thank. You know, I always get so much grief <laughs> for that, but. Um, but so I came back and I, I worked on the special editions uh, when when George started doing those, which was really super exciting. It was the coolest thing ever to like work on the movie that one that you were inspired to yeah. get into making movies on in, in the first place. But um, ILM was in San Rafael those days in this big kind of dumpy industrial park area and stuff. But um, and it was where all the old model shop and creature shop stuff was. And um, there was a big uh, wetlands area out there that we used often as a back lot for, you know, they would put miniatures out there and shoot insert shots of things. And so they had a casting call for people um, who were working at ILM at the time. um, And they said, hey, we need to shoot some inserts for extras because we're going to expand some of the stuff in um, Moss Eisley, right, in the um, scene in... uh, the Moss Eisley spaceport. And so they were looking for people of a certain height to play stormtroopers and then, you know, all kinds of like Tatooine villagers. I think Stu Mashowitz is, he's in some of those shots too. He's like a villager, you know, and you can see him. He has really long curly red hair uh, at the time, which is is pretty awesome. And then um, me and uh, Scott Stewart, who went on to direct, uh, what did he make? He made that movie Priest and mm-hmm. is that what it's called? Priest? Yeah. yeah couple other movies, but uh, me and him and a couple other guys, we all got to put on the uh, white, hard plastic stormtrooper outfits and, um, uh, you know, stand there like we're a couple of guys just guarding a corner or like, you know, walking down a, a street or whatever in a given, you know, alleyway or whatever of Tatooine. And they just shot us against um, 
this kind of sandy um, marshland, and then uh, those elements were taken and composited into some of these larger vista shots. So I got to be a stormtrooper for a day at work at ILM, um, and I have a, a really like I'll send it to you if you want to put it in the show notes. But I have a pretty funny picture of. Um, the plates, which we shot, I think it was all shot on IMAX for the plates. And there's a picture of me and Scott Stewart is standing to my right and a couple other people from uh, ILM all dressed as like Tatooine villagers. Yeah, it's pretty totally hilarious. Yeah, totally. I'll put that in the, in the show notes. Yeah, me? Absolutely. It was, it was definitely one of like the, the coolest days at work you could ever have. You know, it was, it was like a childhood yes. fantasy come true for sure. My, my only like claim to fame is that 10 years ago this year I won an AFI award with a Ben Mendelsohn film. But ben, I think Ben liked it very much because I won, I won Best Visual Effects, but he doesn't have it in his IMDb credits. So I'm going to be disappointed <laughs> about that. But um, hey, uh, Jason and uh, Matt, thanks so much for being with us. Jason, where can people um, hunt you down and, and uh, follow you and, and your brother and the work that you do? Uh, com or Supersphere VR. Dot com or you know anywhere keyboards and work. if you I think it was the last podcast we went into a bit of a um, rat hole about your uh, your uh, work with uh, VR and there are yep. some images of that on the uh, that I lifted with your permission that I'll be putting yep. in the story um, showing the stuff that the guys are doing there which is really interesting so if you're interested in um, following up on VR they're doing some amazing work in extraordinary high resolution uh, and Matt for you. Oh, well, you can always find me on my website, which is mattwallen.com um, or on Twitter at Matt Wallen. And I am on hiatus right now, but I'll be back in the spring at Virginia Commonwealth University uh, in the School of the Arts teaching all kinds of goofy computer graphics, games classes, uh, organic modeling classes, you name it. I'll be there and causing some trouble. And as I said, I'll be in Hawaii as of the 2nd of January. Um, I'll give me another paper at a conference there, which I'm looking forward to. Um, and I've got to say, guys, just as a rat hole, I've been sitting here doing this on my new, yes, it's got a a, uh, a bar thing, MacBook Pro that just arrived today. Santa mm-hmm. arrived early for me. So I have a... Um, what kind of boost new... does the bar serve? <laughs> it, it's cool. It has buttons on it that <laughs> pop up. And also, it's a tricked-up, custom-built, as much RAM, twice as much hard. Was it not a hard drive anymore because it's an SSD? And it's in the dark grey. So, mm. so nice. if the podcast Imperial. sounds particularly yes. good this week, it's because it's being recorded by a, a dark <laughs> a cr- humming a crapple of computer, a, a MacBook Pro gorgeous humming thing that I've been stroking while we've been talking. And in the background, my dog <laughs> has been sleeping and snoring. Um, but there you go. Anyway, guys, it's been uh, great talking to you. Um, thank you, everybody, this year for uh, listening in on the show. As I said, this particular show we had more requests for than any we've had, I think, all year long. The uh, holiday we'll be back spectacular. With more, yes, we'll be back with a bunch more uh, stuff in the new year. Um, and, of course, in the lead-up to uh, the Oscars when I'll get the guys to predict who they think will win and who they think will be snubbed uh, as we head into uh, that uh, period of January, February, as well as, of course, the uh, the visual effects um Society and, and all the stuff that's happening there in television. We like to do episodic television stuff around that time as well, as we have uh, in the last couple of things with the uh, Westworld podcast, which, again, we got a lot of really great comments on. So so thanks for that, guys. Um, but now uh, we must leave our our warm and cosy world of, of Jedi Knights and, uh, and head to the world of funny men in red suits. 
Uh, but wish you and, and all your family the most uh, safe and, uh, and pleasant holidays. And we'll catch you guys in the new year. And again, thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Until next year, see you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.